Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is Professor Deirdre McCloskey, who is Professor of Economics and History Emerita and Professor of English and Communication at the University of Illinois at Chicago. One of her recent books is Why Liber- Liberalism Works, How True Liberal Values Produce a Freer, More Equal, Prosperous World for All. Welcome, Deirdre. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be there, if only virtually. <laughs> yeah, thanks for doing this. So, you sent me a number of different pieces. You have been very productive it looks like during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh I know that you're writing a number of books as well. Um uh, so I want to start with one of the, one of the pieces that you sent me, why you are not a conservative. Yeah. Um you say uh what is the difference between libertarians and conservatives using our favorite word it is of course our unique belief in liberty just yeah. liberty and yeah. spontaneous ordering in the way that language or art or science is ordered by people having a go within a loose framework of honest rewards yeah um so you and i have a common uh, some common time at the university of chicago you in a big way you were a tenured professor there i was a graduate student yeah. uh but uh you know chicago has set of ideals or ideas uh it uh, it seems to impart on everybody that's associated with the school um so so what's your thinking here what what exactly do you mean uh by the difference between libertarians and conservatives well it's it's it, it's also the difference between I, what I would, I would just call them real uh, um, liberals and and the left uh, the socialists and it is that we want people to be adults we want them to be grown up now that doesn't mean we don't help them when they when they're in trouble and so on but it i, I would almost call what what i believe and john stuart mill believed and 
Adam Smith believed, um, adultism. <laughs> that is the idea that, that people shouldn't be children of the state or of anyone else. And, 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 and conservatives, on the contrary, like hierarchy. They like there to be a priest who takes care of his flock, and they like there to be a king who takes care of his his subjects. And and the same is true at the other end of the conventional um, conventional conventional spectrum. If 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 the you know the the old joke is I'm from the state and I'm here to help you. And it often, it, well, it always inevitably involves coercion. And adults um, should be adults, not not slaves or children. Yeah, so um, I'm very sympathetic to that idea, um, Deirdre. It's probably we agree on most of the things, so I'm, I'm looking for <laughs> something that I can disagree with you. Um, <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so, I mean, libertarianism uh, has gone through multiple definitional changes, it seems yeah. to me. Yeah. And people, I think, have different definitions for it even now. It, it, it's not really commonly understood uh, definition or phenomenon, I think. So, so how, do you, how do you really define libertarianism? Well, again, I, I don't like much like the word the the word libertarian, which was um, turned to that use to this use we're talking about it, only about half a century ago or maybe maybe seventy years ago, and the old word the earlier word was simply liberal, and that was an eighteenth century coinage. Uh, uh, liberalism was first used in a publication by David Hume. Um, in Scotland, and so it, it, it it's it's this this theory of autonomy in community. It's often claimed by both conservatives and and socialists that we 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 liberals are not interested in in being nice to people and not interested to in in uh, in in helping other people and being in community with them. And, and on the contrary, that's our main main uh, uh, focus. The key thing is dignity and respect. And the trouble is that if you're a socialist central planner or a, a you know a, a Raj a boss of everyone from the right, then you're you're um, you're, you're 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 bossing people around. And that we don't like. Helping people is one thing, bossing them around is another. Yeah, the, the distinction between wanting hierarchy yeah. and let's say egalitarianism, for lack of a better term. No, it's, uh, it's, I wrote a book in 2009, Deirdre, it's called Flexibility, in which I argued there are no reasons for companies to exist. Um, large companies are, you know, very much organized like pyramids um, with, with very well, very well defined hierarchies. Yeah. And it all happened in industrial revolution because of high transaction costs. Um, yeah. 
in a modern world where the transaction costs are nearly zero, there is really no need for hierarchical systems to produce things. Uh, but I was wrong in 2009. I continue to be wrong uh, because large companies exist. In fact, uh, I think six companies command 40% of S&P 500's market cap today. Yes. We have seen things go in the other direction. So, so, so how, how, do you, how do you explain that? Well, it certainly depends what you mean by a company. Um, Google is not a producer of anything. It's it's doing that 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 middleman job of transactions cost that you're talking about. Walmart is the same way. So is Amazon. So these great big companies, they say, oh, Amazon is a monopoly. No, it's not. It's just a, a, a communication means between consumers and the companies that, that make the goods and services. So I, I think that it's, it's, I think you were right <laughs> that, the, that the old reason to have hierarchy, like an army, where the general sends out an order and everyone turns left or right or goes ahead, um, is less and less necessary in the modern world. And yet, contrary to that, the state in the modern world, which is the hierarchy of hierarchies, is getting bigger. And that I do find um, somewhat paradoxical and certainly irritating. It's, it's um, I have a, have a cousin, interestingly, she works for the CIA. Um, and we don't know what Annie does, but we think she probably is in charge of all the spies in Europe. But we don't know that. <laughs> but anyway, I was, I was talking to her. She's very intelligent. She's a very nice person. And she said what people often say, the more complicated an economy becomes, the more it needs to be regulated. The more we need, she said, bigger and bigger states to regulate the economy. And I said, no, Annie, it's the other way around. The more complicated the economy becomes, the less it should be regulated or the, or the more impossible becomes the job. Look, if, <laughs> is it a good idea to have central planning uh, of the Tamil language or the English language or the Chinese language? Obviously not. Is it a good idea to have central planning of rock music? So, you know, the, some official <laughs> tells you what bands you're allowed to see? Obviously not. And the point that we Adam Smith liberals make is that that's true of the economy too. It's probably a poor idea to, uh, to uh, and Adam Smith was eloquent on this. He, he, he spoke of the arrogance of the, of the, uh, of the, uh, the, the expert planner. He said, the, these guys are nuts. <laughs> he didn't quite put it that way. That, that to think that they can plan, regulate in detail the economy. So I, I think your I th think your hypothesis is actually correct. It because of this funny middleman organizations that have gotten so big, 
it, it, it looks like it's contradicted, but it's not. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to think about it. So what grew is intermediation. Yeah. Um, investment banking is another example. Google yes. search is an example, as you mentioned. Yeah. Walmart's product intermediation is a good example. So really what is growing is intermediation. That's right. Not production, right? right? Yeah. Yes, and of course, it's a much cheaper kind of intermediation, and that's why it grows. It's not because there's some conspiracy of the monopolists to take over the world. The, the big monopolists who are taking over the world are, are the politicians. It's the, the, it's, the, it's the government that's taking over the world, not, not Amazon or, 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 or something. Amazon is a cheaper way to get goods. And how do I know that? Because I choose it all the time. I have in my neighborhood, in fact, downstairs, practically in my building, is a lovely independent bookstore. And I know the owner, she's a wonderful person, and I would like to buy all my books through her. But sitting here <laughs> in my easy chair and clicking on Amazon is a lot quicker and even cheaper. So I do it. So the transaction cost, even of just going downstairs and ordering the book through her, is higher than the transaction's cost of making a click on my computer. And, and, and so it is with all, all these. Um, in, in investment banking is a cheaper way of directing the investment of the world. If, if you didn't have investment banks, individual rich people or would be choosing to invest in this company or that company. Instead, the investment banker brings her expertise to the table, and 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 you can and and and, sh and shows the economy where to go. Yeah, um, the the only thing I would differ there, Deirdre, is that I, I don't know if investment bankers have a lot of expertise. Well, they um. no, they don't. <laughs> but 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 yeah. the individual millionaire has even less, I think is the point. So as, as Ronald Coase pointed out in the 1930s, the great economist Ronald Coase, it's a matter of the comparative cost. The, the, the question is, do you do it yourself? Does the automobile company make its own steel? I suppose it could, but it's probably smarter to outsource the making of the steel for its cars and then buy it from them. And it's that choice that that Coase talked about, the, the choice between doing it yourself and hiring someone else to do it. And although they, they're, you know, the, the steel company may not be perfect at making steel, but it's better than General Motors or, or someone or, or, or Tata or something making its own steel for automobiles. Yeah, I understand that. So comparative advantage is is sort of clear. But going back to the intermediation, though, going back to investment banking, for example, yeah. it, it presumes that the intermediation cannot happen without the investment banker. So, for instance, you know, there are a lot of services, you know, on Internet, 
GoFundIt, and you know, actually when Google went, Google um, thought of going IPO, they thought of actually putting it out on the internet, sure, in, in small pieces, and mm -hmm. uh, they didn't have the guts to do it. Ultimately, <laughs> they had to go find an investment banker. Um, but I think there is a sort of a, a premise that is not truly validated in the modern world, where there is an inefficiency in in funding online that investment bankers well, somehow mediate. Well, I would make the the I would make the prediction, and so do you make the prediction, it seems, that the internet will substitute for investment banks. Just as the investment bank substituted for the individual high wealth individual making her decision by herself. That was Maybe that old, very old way of doing it was not so bad, but it it was better to have a handsome young man in a in a nice suit and <laughs> making that decision. <laughs> the handsome young man, which in fact is happening in stock trading in, in a big way, um, in in the sheer secondhand trading of stock, um, that then is overcome by uh, um, this this change in technology. So I, I expect that'll happen. In fact, the, if, we're, if we're doing in investment advice, invest in such companies. <laughs> Although if I was so smart, I'd be rich. <laughs> no, I mean, the, as you know, the academic prescription for 50 years has been just, just have a portfolio allocation that's on the efficient frontier. Yeah, yeah. Don't pick stocks and bonds uh, of specific companies, uh, but it's a trillion-dollar industry. Almost everybody out there knows which stock is going to go up and which stock is going to go down. It uh, seems, and uh, a lot I of money. Once, I, I once wrote a book in 1990 called "If You're So Smart," which is the joke. I called it the American question: If you're so smart, why aren't you rich? <laughs> and, and it's a very good question to ask about anyone who claims to know the future of fashion, the future of music, the future of mathematics, <laughs> the future of anything human. Now, the future of geology or the weather, even though there are limits to on that, that's very plausible because the mountains and the clouds are not listening. <laughs> but with humans, you know, they're listening. And if you say, oh, well, there's a January effect, uh, stocks go up in January. Well, uh -huh. if, <laughs> if that's true, anyone around, anyone who hears it can make, make a fortune. So that, that's good. there has to be something wrong with that kind of um, second guessing of the human world. Yeah, this is slightly off track, Deirdre, but I want to get your perspective on this. So I grew up in uh, you know, a southern state in India. This is a state that uh, elected a Marxist government to power right after, um, right after uh, independence. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I, 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 you mean uh, um, Kerala? Kerala. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up. Uh, there, there is a sense of egalitarianism in that system. Yeah. There were a lot of different religions, um, but egalitarianism was sort of a fundamental construct that people gravitate toward. Then I came to Northwestern and, you know, um, and after University of Chicago, um, my, my views changed. 
Yeah. Uh, but off late, I look at large democracies, large um, free market capital systems, and I find no egalitarianism <laughs> of any sort. Oh, and well, so, yeah. Well, I, I don't actually agree with that. Look, there's good, there's bad, and there's bad inequality, and that comes from stealing, or it comes from stupid behavior by, by government. Um, in 1955% of, America, of Americans had to have licenses, state licenses to, 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 for their work. Now it's almost 30%. Now that's a really bad idea and it's gonna make people poorer and it's gonna create inequalities because the people who get the licenses often get them for reasons of, uh, of favoritism and so on. So that's bad inequality. And I'm like my friends on the left, I'm, I'm against it. But there's good inequality. Um, I'm, a, I, I'm a cricket fan. And, you know, if some guy knows how to bat very well, uh, I, 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 um, I, I, I have up on my computer here, I can show it to you. 97.97. <laughs> 97.97. Do you know what that is? No. That was Donald Bradman's. Oh, test. yeah, yeah. Right, 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 right. Yeah. 99.97. <laughs> he was out for a, a duck in his last innings. Right. And so it wasn't over 100. So look, I think Donald Bradman deserved every, you know, Australian dollar he got. And someone sings better than someone else. Someone knows brain surgery better than someone else. In order to uh, get people to do that, <laughs> you, you, you have to pay them more. And in any case, what the high payment for, I don't know, Donald Bradman or, or someone or, or a brain surgeon does is it signals to the economy, make more of this. If you can figure out to make your feet as fast as Donald Bradman's, do it. If you learn, if you have a new way of teaching people to be brain surgeons, do it. So that's good. And, and then, of course, the, the, the speaking of Amazon, the to, Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world because he had a very good idea. And most of the gain, the social gain from his good idea goes to you and me, not to him. Um, Bill uh, Nordhaus has done a calculation that since the Second World War in the United States, only 2% of the social gain of innovation has gone to the inventors or the entrepreneurs. Now, 2% of Walmart makes the children of, uh, of Walton, James Walton, Jim Walton, very, very rich. If you add them all together, they're more than Bezos. But it makes us rich too. I just wrote a book with Art Carden, a kind of popular su summary of some more scholarly books of mine called, here's what it's called, Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich. <laughs> Leave me alone and I'll make you rich. 
agree. I fully agree with that, Deirdre. So the, the only thing I would say is that the rules have to be the same for everybody. Um, and that's your word in your your very accurate and good word, egalitarianism. The key to real liberalism, Adam Smith, John Stuart Mill, and even Milton Friedman and me is equality. If there's not equality, if you blockade entry to, I don't know, retailing, then uh, Amazon can't be invented. And indeed, Jeff Bezos just goes on being rich. What's happened over and over and over again in economic history is that someone gets a bright idea, he's made rich by that idea, like the invention of department stores in France and in Britain and the United States in the late 19th century. The depart standard department store was a very clever invention, clever marketing invention. And many fortunes, local fortunes, um, were made in all these countries from department stores. But, you know, it's easy to imitate. And so people rushed in and then the consumers get the benefit because you can't charge a big price or a big, you can't get large profits if everyone's coming in. It's the obstacles, the inegalitarian obstacles. You remember what I said about, about uh, occupational uh, licenses. I'm usually the only person in the room who could be an apprentice electrician in the state of Michigan in the United States. <laughs> now, why is that? Now, I'm, I, I'm 79 years old, so I'm not likely to do that. But I'm the only, you, you can't, I can. And the reason is that the only way you get into the union of electricians in Michigan is to have a grandfather, an uncle, and a cousin, mm. all of whom were union electricians. And that creates inequality. Right. If anyone can be an electrician who wants to be, or, you know, has the goes and learns, then electricians are not expensive. I just spent to have a pipe replaced. I gave a plumber in Chicago $400. He was in my house for about half an hour. Yeah, so I want to ask you one more question on this, and we'll go to other other pieces. So where do you stand on uh, initial conditions? What I mean is that we recently lost a, a self-proclaimed most intelligent president um, who <laughs> said that uh, his dad... Stable genius. Yeah, stable genius. Uh, his dad gave him only a few million dollars, and look what he has accomplished. 400. Um, which is... so. Uh, you know, I, I'm not big on taxing anything, but I think setting initial conditions similar to everybody running no. the race. No? No, here's why. The key to real freedom in a country is equality of permission. It's permission that you need. Equality of opportunity is impossible. And the reason is that it depends on who your parents are. And we 
Yeah, I, I was very clever in choosing my parents, and I deserve tremendous credit for it. <laughs> my, father, my father was a professor at Harvard University. My mother was an opera singer. <laughs> okay, now look, come on. <laughs> Whereas my, my father made a very poor choice in choosing his parents. He's the one who became the Harvard professor. His uh, father was worked on the railway, and his, his mother was a housewife. That's bad choice. You see what I mean? So to make people equal, you would have to go to a kind of like the constitution of Sparta in ancient Greece, where you take the children away from their parents and put them in a common schooling from the time they're four, three or four years old. And very few people really want that when they think about it. We want our own children we, we love our own children. We want to help them as much as we can, whether we're poor or rich. And sometimes a rich person like Donald Trump has very bad parents, which he did. He had terrible, terrible parents, and it made him crazy. And sometimes poor people like Andrew Carnegie, our great entrepreneur, have very good parents who instill, uh, um, or, or actually an excellent case is Michelle Obama, Obama's wife. She, she, her, her, uh, her father was a, uh, was a, was a government employee, her mother, her mother, I believe was a housewife, but they instilled this wonderful work ethic. So it's, you know, I want to help poor people mainly. That's my main purpose in becoming an economist. And the best way to help poor people is equality of permission. If they want to buy from India or Germany, they should be allowed to. If they want to enter an occupation, there should be um, private licenses, not state licenses, that assure quality. And that's all. Equality. Yeah, so it's, it's not economic initial conditions. It is really equality in the choice set. That, well, right. and, and it's not just, not even the choice set. Look, how many ways can we be equal? If all we're interested in is income equality, that's a very partial understanding. There are some women who are more beautiful than I am. Well, let's see, how to make that equal? Ah, I know. We'll will chop off the nose of all the other women. <laughs> I'll be the most beautiful person in the world. I mean, that's obviously, that's crazy. Um, uh, um, the, the, look, um, our, 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 our um, uh, the, you, we have gifts. We all have gifts. Some of us have more gifts than others. I admit that there's absolute advantage as well as comparative advantage. But there, there are lots of people smarter than me. You know your language. I don't. I, uh, I forget what language they speak in in, in in Kerala. It's called Malayalam. Okay, you know that. You know English. You probably know French or something. Okay. No, but, I'm really bad in languages, dearly. So. Okay. okay, but I'm worse. I guarantee you I'm worse because you speak English very well. You have at least two languages. I have one. How to make a sequel. I got it. We'll pound nails into your head until you're as stupid as I am. 
Equality isn't, there are so many dimensions of humans that it's really silly. Some people are good at, I don't know, Indian traditional music or, or, um, or, or cricket or cooking or something. Um, and some people aren't. And then, then we can trade. That's the big thing. If the permissions are there, if we're permitted to do it, then we all get better off. Permissions and property rights and all the stuff that we talk about, the system is consistent and equal for everybody, yeah, right? But it's mainly the equality that's the point. Look, there is a calculation that, that economists have made about what would happen to world average income if there was perfectly free migration. I'm in favor of it. It's not going to happen, I admit, but I'm in favor of it. Um, if people wanted to move from, 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 from Kerala to England or from England to um, Australia or wherever they'd be allowed to. That's actually how it was in, uh, over 100 years ago. Um, it, it, essentially, there was free migration in the 19th century, except the transport costs were very high. Now they're very low. But anyway, it turns out that income would double. World income would double if we allowed people to move freely. And, you know, I'm in favor of doubling income. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I, I sometimes think about countries, we have 200 of them. Yeah. Um, it's sort of a segmentation scheme we put it in is. place. It's um, an way of expressing it. And um, as you say, if that segmentation scheme doesn't exist, the economies will become more efficient. And, uh, and uh, you know, talent will go to where talent can capture the highest premium. Of course, so on, of right? course. The, real, the real equality is equality in having a go, as the British say, in invention. Because it's not mainly efficiency in the economist sense or even investment in the banker sense that have, that's made us rich, although they're very nice. What... What's made us really rich is new ideas, reinforced concrete, uh, the, the personal computer, uh, the steel, even sailing ship, uh, the steam engine, um, antibiotics, the modern university. All these are very, very good ideas, and those are what made us rich. And permission to do them is hard to get because... <laughs> the traditional universities are made worse off if there's a new model for universities. And the horse sellers are made off if the automobile, made worse off if the automobile is invented. So there's always a vested interest in, in not having innovation. And what's remarkable about the modern world since around 1800 is that innovation enormously increased. I mean, you, humans have always innovated. Um, India practically invented cotton cloth, although actually there was cotton cloth in, in the New World 
before before Columbus, but but India's Indian cloth was tremendously good. Um, so that was an, but they invented too slowly. After 1800, everything got invented, and that depended on permission. Yeah, so in the modern world, Deirdre, again, we're going a little bit of a tangent, but I want to get your perspective on this. There are two types of innovations. So I think about engineering and medical innovation. Yeah. Um, it's very difficult for a company in Nigeria to come up with quantum computers yeah. because it takes a lot of resources, it takes a lot of investment, yeah. right? So it sort of segregates um, people who can do those types of innovations. But I've been puzzled by, um, you know, sort of theoretical advancements, which I call, you know, sort of paper and pencil advancement, mm -hmm. um, which I don't see uh, happening that much in countries which you would imagine, you know, a uh, lot of mathematics background and physics and all of that. But we haven't really seen paper and pencil innovation going on there too. So what is holding many of these countries back, you think? Well, I, 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 I agree with your word, segregation applied to the movement of people and goods. But I don't agree with it when you say that, well, Nigeria hasn't got the uh, academic background to do um, uh, um, quantum um, computing, so that's not, that's not academic, but resources, you know, yeah. to, to make a quantum computer work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I'm I'm not so sure that um, investment is the key to all this. But okay, let's let's set that aside. Why why aren't there more um, paper and pencil innovations? Well, in some ways there are. Um, the uh, uh, the examples I have to give. Let me see. Well, an easy paper and pencil example from history is math mathematics, um, algebra. Now, the word is Arabic, and it was or the original idea was was Arabic. It means the breaking apart. It's like the Greek word analysis, which also means breaking apart. Um, Algebra is a is a is, is a paper and pencil innovation by which you mean it's inexpensive, but so is Amazon. Amazon, you know, they have to have warehouses, but you know, we we have warehouse technology. We 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 know that already. Um, an excellent example of a sheer idea. What, what you're asking is. Where are the sheer idea inventions that don't involve massive amounts of capital? And an odd one is the invention in Germany in the 1920s of divided highways, divided limited access highways, the modern superhighway or autobahn. And that was just someone's idea. An even more spectacular example is containerization. You know, got to build the containers and the ships to carry them. But the idea is just someone said, gee, uh, a man named um, Malcolm McLean said, gee, let's let's put corrugated steel boxes on top of each other and put them on ships and send them to India. So I think there are still paper and pencil ideas that are coming up. 
I was thinking more sort of theoretical um, advancement. Well, well, I have something to say about that if you want. Sure. I, I, I'm the answer li uh, um, lady. I have. Uh, if you want to <laughs> advice about your love life, I can give you that and, and so on. <laughs> but but here's, here's what's going to happen in the next century. Those theoretical improvements are going to happen in Africa. Now, why is that? They're not going to happen in India or China or in Europe or the United States. They're going to happen in Africa. What a crazy thing to say. Look at the state of Africa, poorest continent in the world. What a mess. Why Africa? Well, everyone here, every homo sapien, sapiens, you and me, come from Africa. Your people came out of Africa, I don't know, 40,000 years ago, 70,000, 30,000, and turned right. My ancestors came out, I don't know, 70, 30,000 years ago and turned left. That's the only difference between you and me. We're all Africans. That means the, and it, there is, I'm not making any some strange racist point here. That means that there's much more genetic variability in Africa than there is anywhere else. And that's simply a fact. That's not some crazy madness. It's known to be. It's called the founder effect. And I could go into it. But anyway, it's the founder effect. This means that when Africa develops, as it will, and they stop, stop killing each other, as both Europeans and Indians were doing in a big way before the 19th uh, century, <coughs> when they stopped all these wars and tyrants and poverty, the smartest people in the world are going to be Africans, black Africans, sub-Saharan Africans, uh, because the extreme tail of all the distributions of athletic ability, musical ability, scientific ability are going to be people with black skins. So prepare for it. <laughs> in a century, you and I will be obsolete, and black people will take over the this these pencil and paper innovations. Yeah, I mean, the, the, on the other side, Deirdre, you know, if you look 100 years into the future, everybody's going to do exactly the same, some sort of Chinese, brownish, blackish, whitish combination. Well, <laughs> that's going to take a lot of work, um, a certain kind of work, speaking of, uh, of, of love life. Yes. <laughs> so, so I want to go into another piece. Um, I have to say, you know, I haven't really um, studied a lot about this. So you say, Wokesters wake. What's special about the modern world is not exploitation. The woke are dead asleep, and capitalism has nothing to do with the modern world, you say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, aside from that, I am on board. <laughs> so what do you mean? <laughs> well, the, the, uh, the I, I call the system that we've developed in the last couple of centuries in India and the United States and all over the place, I call it innovism because capitalism is a very silly word and it's, it's misled people. People think, well, it must be that then capital accumulation is the heart of the modern world. And it's not. It's those 
pencil and paper ideas, and then their application, whether or not they require lots of capital. You know, they, they, in, in Germany, they're going to build roads anyway, and to make them divided, limited access highways, so that cars could go very, very fast without crashing into each other was a very simple and good idea. So it, it's not, it's the, the better word for the modern world is innovism. Um, and uh, uh, so we, we've, we, that, that, that's why I say that the woke and lots of other people who insist on calling it capitalism are, are so misled. They're certainly asleep. They're, their economic history is bad. Their um, their analysis of the modern economy and society is bad. Although in that article, I also this was an article in uh, the conservative magazine, National Review, United States, and I'm not a conservative. I'm a I, I'm a liberal, and I was saying to them, look, just because the woke are stupid, doesn't mean putting a minus sign in front of wokeness is going to make you smart. <laughs> it's you saying, oh, no, there's no racism in the United States. Well, come on. That's like <laughs> there's, no, there's no caste prejudice in India. I mean, give me a break. Of course there's caste prejudice in India. You're working on it. That's good. Uh, but, you know, come on. You can't just deny that the United States has, um, has racism. Yeah, so, you know, sometimes um, I think the younger crowd in some sense gets excited and and starts to look at things differently. Yeah. But there are foundational issues that has been that have been there for a long time. I know. In some sense, nothing has changed, right? It's, it's very hard. It's a task that you and I and, and the other grown-ups in the room need to work on. You remember how it was when you you were on that young. I do too. These older people were stupid and we knew how to do it. I was a socialist then. And they, they were so stupid, those, those older people. Um, and here's the problem. Increasingly, young people, if they're middle class, grow up without any understanding of the economy because they've not had to work. If they come from a from a farm, they know work. And explaining economics to them is a lot easier than explaining it to the son of a college professor such as I was. You know, I was a son, alas, not a daughter. Um, okay. Uh, and every generation is going to experience that, and it's going to get worse and worse. Here's what's bad about it. Families are socialist economies, and they should be. Neither your mother nor I made us go out to work when we were five years old in order to pay for lunch. <laughs> she just gave it to us and made us eat it, by the way. Um, and that's how it should be. There should be an authoritarian, top-down, mama and papa 
run the little economy of the um, of the family for the benefit of the children. But uh, this this idea that families are just sharing, which is true, doesn't apply to what Hayek, the great economist, called the great society. If if you just start sharing with with um, everyone in your neighborhood, no one will go to work. Everyone will free ride off everyone else. Saint Paul, our, our great saint of uh, of Christianity, said once, um, "He who does not work should not eat." <laughs> Very about <laughs> this, and and the reason was that people were living off each other. And, right. and the problem with modern politics is that people think, well, I'm in a, a national family. I mean, you're having a big, big debate in India about uh, the farmers. And the farmers shouldn't be subsidized by the rest of the economy. That's not smart. That's not how to run an economy. Uh, uh, but if they want to be, if the farmers desire to be treated like children, because after all, we're in a big family, you're going to have a very inefficient economy and a very uninnovative economy too, which is not natural for India. India is an extremely creative country. All parts of it are. And uh, it, it has this wonderfully, here, mark, mark my words. In 20 years, in 20 years, maybe 30, Income per head in India is going to be higher than it is in China. Hmm. We, we should we should come back to that. But I want to push on this um, family unit, socialistic family unit you talked about. Yeah. Um, let let me let me push on this a little bit. So it used to be that parents knew better than children. Yeah. Uh, it may not be the case in the future, right? We, we are sort of an exponentially increasing knowledge curve. Yeah, it's not possible that parents don't know what, yeah. what what the right thing might be for the for the kids. Well, they, they often don't. I mean, look to, to to take a look at arranged marriage, which is not a minor thing in India, um, in, in certain groups, and. Um, there's a case to be made for arranged marriage precisely in a situation where it's very hard to communicate where where there's no um there's no telephone or <laughs> no no computers or no there's no way of doing it on your own uh where um for various reasons um well transportation costs is very high so high transaction costs well if if you want a husband you've got to it's hard to find someone outside your village, and every every boy in your village is a jerk. You know <laughs> what you do? Uh, you end up ma marrying a jerk. So then, then there's a case for the matchmaker and the and all that kind of stuff. Look in Ireland, that's what they did. In the Ireland of my my ancestors, they had arranged marriages all the time, um, and so too in India. Okay. And then you're saying, well, with improved um, transportation costs, go back to our transaction cost argument uh, discussion earlier. All right, then the kids make a better decision. Um, but 
for little kids, it's and that's for teenagers. For little kids, it's obvious that you've got to have a mama and a papa, preferably both. And then you've got to have aunties and you've got to have uncles and uh, and you've got to have a whole family to help these little kids, four-year-olds, five-year-olds. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's sort of a psychological development of a human being, right? So the, the, the first few years are so critical. Absolutely, and that, that needs that needs this socialist. It, I call it socialist, but the, because that's what it is. It's an, an authoritarian, top-down, centrally planned little family. Now, anyone who's ever been a parent or been in a family, and I, we all have, knows that it sometimes doesn't work out very well. Sometimes it's a bad family, or sometimes even the most wonderful parents make mistakes. But still, it's it's necessary. You got to have something like it. Um, in fact, it, if you go the Spartan route, you simply substitute the state for the mother and father. But it's the same thing. The the state then is raising children. Okay, because you've got to raise children, and that's a socialist. And it it's it's very similar to your initial question about the existence of firms. As this character Ronald Coase back in the 30s said, um, uh, the, uh, the, the central direction for some things might be the best way to do it. Yeah, the other thing I want to ask you is sort of the prescriptive aspects of education. Uh, yeah. It's a really good question. So as you know, I don't know if it's Norway or Finland, I think it's Finland who recently sort of redesigned their education system, basically saying they're not going to have, you know, physics 101, chemistry 102 type thing anymore. It is up to the student to design what he or she wants to learn, yeah. which I'm very attracted to. Uh, I think in the US, we are sort of losing it. You know, I sometimes believe that if you're in engineering school, is there a lot of value in learning Newtonian mechanics? I would argue not really, because we can teach computers Newtonian mechanics pretty well. Yeah, that's and right. So, so why waste your time? <laughs> you know? I, I completely understand you. I, I belong to a club in Chicago that was founded by architects um, and about 100 years ago. And they tell me that young architects do not need to draw anymore. They don't need to learn to draw. So they have the corner of the room. In the old days, they'd draw a picture of it, and they'd have to be good at drawing. Yeah. Now they don't need to, because they have these uh, computer-assisted things that they, if they, <laughs> if they do it and they, they, they then look at it with quotation marks around it, uh, inverted commas, and there's a hole <laughs> because they didn't give the right dimensions, they can just change the numbers and get the corner of the room to be correct. So, I mean, that, uh, that's happening. I, I, I completely agree with you that, that the future of mathematics is, for engineering purposes, is simulation, not what we call in mathematics analytic solutions. I think a certain amount of, of talk of analytic solutions is probably desirable in education somewhere, but it doesn't... And, and the same thing holds for computers. In computer science courses, um, 
these days in, in universities. There are courses in theorems about computers. And oh, they're unnecessary. You're, you're, any moderately complicated computer program is too complicated for you to know whether it's free of bugs by theorem. You gotta try it out. And then you notice, whoops, wait a second, it's doing it wrong here. Then you fix it. And then you add another complication and another and another until look, um, I don't know, Microsoft, uh, uh, what's it called? Microsoft Word is such a complicated program that the theorems are completely irrelevant. And so, yes, I agree. I think in science generally, in quantitative sciences, si simulation is going to take over. Yeah, I fully agree with that. You know, uh, humans are really bad. Um, I, they, they have been bad in industrial revolution to put nuts and bolts into an automobile. It's repeating, they make a lot of mistakes, we get bad automobiles. Yes. Same thing is happening now in, in software, you know, programming. Yeah. Uh, humans are pretty bad at writing programs because they make a lot of mistakes. Yeah, yeah. You can teach computers to write programs. Yeah, I agree with you. It's not, you know, hey, I don't know, but it sounds to me like AI is the way to go. So you have computers making computer programs as long as they don't take over. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm going to go into another paper you have. The economic possibilities for our grandchildren are immense, you say. Yeah. Um, you say you hear it uh, said daily that things used to be great, a golden age, but then sadly we have lost our way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, things have never been this bad. Um, so you're taking a counter uh, argument here. Uh, pessimism is ill-considered, even silly, even dangerous, you say. Yeah. Yeah, to the contrary, in the present day, even with COVID, is the best best of times ever, and almost yes. everywhere. That's uh, so. Make make your make your case there, and I might I might have some uh, some issues with this. So let's uh, see if we can debate it. Yeah. Here's one way to look. Here's one way to think about it. The World Bank and the IMF and other wise folk. They reckon that real income per head in the world, which means how much goods and services you can buy and make, is increasing every year, roughly about 2% a year, 2% a year. Some places like India, it's much higher. Some places it's lower, but we hope it's gonna start getting better at those, those places in, in, in Europe. In the United States, it's generally below 2%, but okay. That's the rough world average. Now, that doesn't sound like much, 2% a year. But compound interest is pretty amazing. It means that, now hear this, by the end of the century, income per head in the world for the average person in the world will be four times what it is now it will have have doubled, no, four times. No, eight times more than it is now. Um, it will have, it will have doubled three times. Yeah. And, and that means <laughs> that the average person in the world 
will be earning much more by the year uh, 3000 than, I don't know, Switzerland earns now. So we face an incredibly enriched future if we don't mess it up. <laughs> That's a big if, yeah. That's right, because we've been really good at messing it up. In August 1914, the Europeans started a violent quarrel with each other, which basically didn't end until November 1989. <laughs> it's the fall of the Berlin Wall. You know, that's, that's a really stupid thing to do. And we want to avoid that. We also want to avoid policy craziness, policy wars, policy mistakes, uh, like, like attacking inequality in a way that reduces that 2% to 1%. 1% means that by the end of the century, Income per head will be only, now hear this, against eight, it'll be one and a half times more than it is now. It'll be, no, wait, that's not right. It'll be, let's see, it'll be 150% of what it is now instead of 800%. 800% solves a lot of social problems. Yeah. Um, income growth solves a lot of problems. Um, I had your colleague uh, from University of Chicago, Ken uh, Pomerantz, on recently. Yeah. And uh, one of the insights I got <coughs> from that conversation is that sometimes when we look at aggregate metrics per capita GDP yeah. for a country like China or India or right. even the US or OECD in general, we miss a lot of the details. Well, Ken, he, he's, he's been saying that for about 40 years. Um, he's a man of the left, Pomerantz is. And he's, he's a wonderful man and he's an excellent historian. He's not a very good economist. And look, average income eight times more than it is now. <laughs> there are very few people who, who, there are very few boats that aren't gonna be raised. A long time ago, Ken did with a colleague at at um, Irvine, the University of California, Irvine, where he was before, they did a, a, a very good book of essays that they had um, been contributing to a newspaper, an economic newspaper in East Asia for a long time. And every chapter in that book is about the bad side of economic growth, every single chapter. So one of their stories, which was correct, carefully done, showed that people in Central America were exploited to raise twine, twine from some, some uh, plant that was used to bale wheat and make bales of wheat in Kansas, in the United States. So as the wheat industry expanded, these people were exploited in Latin America. But they weren't, they, they, the problems with this argument are immense. But they, they weren't exploited because of the wheat. They were exploited because they were exploited. <laughs> they were in a bad position and the, and the bosses took advantage of it. It happened to be 
about the weak twine. But what Ken never does, never in his entire scholarly output, which is considerable, does he admit that modern economic growth has increased income in the world by a factor of 30, 3,000 percent since 1800. What's the story about the last two centuries? It's not about the twine makers in Central America. It's about even in Central America. I was just in Guatemala at a conference for a week. Even in Guatemala, which has his income per head is half the world average, it's still much better off than it was in 1800. And Ken won't admit it. Sees <laughs> he's a historian, not an economist. He's not a quantitative person. So when you talk about averages, how about the people who are below average? Well, I'm telling you that the people below average, your ancestors and mine, my Irish ancestors, your Indian ancestors, were unspeakably poor. And now look at us. Um, the the one thing I worry about, I just want to get your perspective on this. So when we look at economic growth per capita GDP and so on, are we really internalizing all the costs um, in that equation? Uh, I mean, we, we seem to have, I don't have all the data, but we seem to have some sort of a runaway greenhouse uh, thing going on, um, effect, right? I'm, I'm worried about greenhouse, the greenhouse effect. I'm worried about global warming. And I, I completely believe that it's caused by, by humans and about, about carbon emission. And by the way, about, about methane emission, which is much worse, much more dangerous. Um, I mean, there, there is methane because of the warming coming out of the permafrost in Siberia and northern Canada. This is really dangerous. We got to stop it. So I'm all for it. Uh, there is a there is a new technology in Iceland, which uses the thermal power of a place that has volcanoes to um, to to capture uh, carbon dioxide from the air and turn it into stone uh, at a at what's now a high price but can be made low. But anyway. So I think the engineers and engineers ought to get to work on it. I think we ought to have a carbon price to give them an incentive to do it. I think they'll have an incentive anyway, because I think carbon fuels will get gradually more expensive. And non actually, the big thing that would save us all is the one thing that we won't do, which is atomic energy. Atomic France gets 90% of its energy from atomic energy, clean atomic energy. Germany, which claims to be green, <laughs> keeps using coal because of it's, it's afraid of atomic energy. I mean, this, this is crazy, uh, but, but okay. I'm not saying that that's the only solution, but it's one solution. Um, but that's not... the. <laughs> The way you get those solutions is to have economic growth. The way you fail to get them, the way you go on using 
um, cow poop to as fuel, which is extremely dangerous. It's very bad for the health of people. Um, it's 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 got lots of carbon in it, for sure. Um, uh, is to get is for India to get richer. Uh, the way for um, uh, China to be able to afford more atomic energy is to for China to get rich. And so, uh, it's 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 not saying oh well there's an environmental problem. Is not a way of saying, well, then I guess we got to stop economic growth. If you stop economic growth, you'll have both. You'll be poor and you'll be dead. <laughs> uh, and and you won't have enough oxygen to breathe. <laughs> so it'll be a bad, bad death. Uh, so, so I want to go into another uh, piece you have prudence over sustainability. It's just yeah. uh, very connected with what you're talking about. So you say here sustainability is an increasingly popular term. Yeah, it is. But it's a poor basis for sound public policy. And this is what we've been sort of discussing. Yeah. You say it conveys a biologist's view of economy without any of the prudence. That's right. Economist's favor. Um, That's right. So, so, yeah, so. Well, Sustainability has all kinds of problems. For one thing, to do one thing, which is sustain things, in aid of future generations, people always say that. Oh, I want my grandchildren to be better off. Your grandchildren are going to be richer, dear. <laughs> your grandchildren in India are going to be, you know, your grandchildren are going to be two times better off than you are, maybe three times. What are you transferring income from you to your grandchildren for, or your great-grandchildren, or your great-great-grandchildren? It's to, to be obsessed with the future as though there was no sense in spending the resources we have now in order to achieve a rich future is, uh, is, is it's contrary to common sense because it's to transfer from poor people, that's people now, to rich people in the future. And that doesn't make any sense from a, from an ethical point of view. From an from a from a engineering and, and economic point of view, isn't it obvious that having more Indian engineers, let's say, using up oil resources to get more engineers now, say, just take that case, um, will result in a better future when the engineers think up some um, alternative to oil. So we, 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 here, here's a shocking way of saying what I'm saying. We should up all the oil now. We should just burn it up. There's no point in saving. <laughs> saving it for who? For these rich people in the future? That's nuts. Burn the oil to get rich, to give people the economic opportunity to go to, to uh, secondary school and to higher education. And then you'll have the kind of sophisticated um, uh, entrepreneurial society that can fix the problem of not having the oil anymore. 
Now, look, I don't think we should. I think we should um, um, be be stewards of nature. I'm I'm a Christian. I'm an Anglican, and I believe in the in 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 stewardship as many faiths do. Um, so that so I, so I don't mean burn down the Amazonian forest tomorrow. Wouldn't that be fun? We can watch it from space. No. I think there are rational ways of using the forest, but but to make it completely sustainable is silly. Um, we can we, we look. It it actually is the case that there are now more. Um, what's the word for them? More nature preserves, vast area in the world than there were 20 years ago. Off the course, off the coast of, of Western Africa, there are large parts of the ocean which are nature preserves. I was just looking at a show on, uh, on TV about it. Um, that's what a rich country, a, a rich world can do. A poor world, the, the world of our ancestors, come on, being <laughs> preserving fish was a crazy thing to do. You, you use up the fish, you over harvest the fish because you've got to eat. Um, and that's, that's so, so that, that's what I mean, prudent, uh, um, a, a prudent attitude towards towards nature is much better than a uh, let's preserve everything and have zero economic growth. Yeah, the, the only thing I wonder about, you, uh, going back to what you were saying before, I don't know if innovation is highly correlated with education. In well, fact, I, I will almost go the other direction. I think innovation is sort of a negatively correlated uh, with education. So are we going to be better off having more engineers and more doctors in the future? We are going to, with having more engineers and doctors is not the problem. Having more arts graduates, maybe. Um, and and that doesn't mean we should close off the arts. I'm an English professor of English, among other things. Um, and, and I value it very much because it's, it enriches human life even if it's not um, economically enriching. Um, and and I, I agree with you. I think that what's most important is entrepreneurial liberty. And we don't need, you know, I, I've, I've, I've taught in South Africa for, for a, a small amount, but I'm, I, I, but I love South Africa. Um, but what the what what the South Africans say is, well, we've got we've got to have a high minimum wage, which the Congress of South African Trade Unions wants, and then of course we get enormous unemployment, fifty percent unemployment. Wow! How to solve that? Well, educate the people so that they're worth the minimum wage, right? Make them read better, have more math, and be engineers, then they'll be worth the minimum wage. That is a terrible way to do it. What you should do is let people start businesses, which is very hard to do in South Africa, 
um, uh, um, make them free, then they'll educate themselves for whatever they want to do once they're uh, once they're once they're enriched. So it's you're you're right. In fact, education can often be very conservative, very traditionalist. In fact, it was conventional. I mean, the the way to get educated in India in the old days was to learn Sanskrit. Now, I I'm a big fan of uh, uh, Das, Gurcharan Das, who ha has a wonderful book called How to Be Good, based on the Mahabharata in Hindu. In the Hindu epics, and he makes a very good case that that epic is an education in ethics. So I'm all for it. But um, a lot of education in ethics, as as for example, Confucianism in China, is very conservative. It says obey the emperor. Um, obey your father, obey your older brother, obey your husband. <laughs> it's all about obedience. It's hierarchy. It's hierarchical, as of course um, Hindu um, practice is. But in any case, uh, um, the, the the church in 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 Europe was no great uh, progressive force. Although some people perversely have argued that I don't know what they're talking about. It's insane. But that is all, all the, the Western economic growth came out of Christianity. That is truly nuts. Those, these are people who haven't haven't looked into Christianity. Yeah, I mean, religion was a very nice segmentation scheme <laughs> invented by. It was, it was uh, a segmentation scheme, especially in, in India, but also in, in the West. And although there's a notion which you find in all religions, all theistic religions, the the notion of choice, of, of free will, as we say in, in in Christian theology. And I just wrote an essay for a Dutch theological journal, um, making the case that free will is consistent with free markets. Hmm. I would love to read that. I, I haven't seen that. Uh, well, it, so, it's on my website, deirdremacaste.org. Okay. <coughs> I looked that up. So I want to finish up with, um, you have another piece that talked about sort of liberty versus freedom. And you touched on this before. Yeah. I want to finish up with that. Um, I mean, we we hear these words in in the sort of political, you know, sort of conversations, you know, liberty and and freedom. Yeah. Um, but they are sort of different, aren't they? Well, they are in modern English. They aren't in older English. Um, the the word freedom is a Germanic word. In 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 German, it's Freiheit. It's the same word, freedom. Um, and and it meant not being a slave. 
not being a serf, not being subordinated to someone. The, the, the identical idea in Latin is liber, um, namely freedom. I mean, free to, to be a free person. And that's what it meant in Rome. And then we get the word through French and English of liberty. So up until, I don't know, the 18th century, they meant a really 19th century. In English, they meant very much the same thing. They overlapped. But since the so-called new liberals of the 1880s in England, in Britain, the word freedom started to get bigger. And it started to get confused with having resources. So it's rather obvious that a person who has a million dollars can do more things than a person who has a hundred dollars, right? That's so okay. A person who has wings, as against people who don't have wings, can fly, right? <laughs> a person who has more abilities can do better than a person who doesn't. And people started, to, especially in this matter of income, started to call that freedom. Now, I'm acquainted with the great economist Amartya Sen. In fact, there's a there there's a funny episode where Amartya and I and a couple of South Asian women went out with Amartya for lunch at a, uh, a in New York at the meeting of the American Economic Association, and all the women, including me, had on saris. <laughs> I, at that point, I had one sari, now I have two. Uh, <laughs> most Indian women have, you know, 50 saris, but I have two at least. And the sari is the greatest article of clothing for a woman. It's like Italian suits for men. An Italian suit, any man looks great. In a sari, any, and, and anyway, Amartya has got it wrong, dramatically wrong. He's got a book that you're familiar with called D Development as Freedom. And he and my friend, uh, another much closer friend of mine, uh, Martha, N N Martha N N Nussbaum, talk about capabilities. They say, look, people have to get elementary education and they have to be able to eat. I mean, suppose you're not a slave, but you're starving. What's so great about that? that that's their line of argument. Yeah. They've got to have the vote. They've got to have this. They've got to have that. Look, the word, the word in English, liberty, has kept its original meaning yeah. of uh, it's it's political meaning that you're not a slave, whereas this word freedom has just gotten completely out of hand. I believe, as Amartya does too, I'm sure that, or he doesn't as much as I do, that liberty leads to enrichment, yeah. but liberty is not the same thing as enrichment. Yeah. If it if that's the way you were using the words. It would be scientifically pointless because you define freedom to be enrichment. Therefore, you say development causes freedom. But you're saying enrichment causes enrichment. 
See what I mean? It makes the theory into a tautology. So it's it's I prefer and I keep keep correcting my own prose to use the old the word that has kept its old meaning. I, I know it sounds complicated and academic and so on, but the problem is it has practical um, political consequences in policy. Because it confuses yeah, I, what what people need is permission. <laughs> they need equality of permission. That's what they need. And then you can leave them alone, help them out in a, you know, in a, in a, a hurricane or something. But, but, it's, you know, help them out and help. Um, and I, you know, as I said, I'm a, I'm I, I'm a Christian liberal. I believe I believe we have an obligation to the poor. I s believe we have an ob obligation of, of of stewardship to nature. Um, I believe we've got to be nice to people and reasonable. But I don't believe we should be bossing them around. Yeah, I mean, so there, there's a lot of lot of thoughts uh, <laughs> that one could one could think about this. So, in this politically charged regime that we are in today, in the U.S., I'm specifically thinking about um, all these words are thrown out without really understanding what they mean in the press, on TV, and and everywhere, That's and right. so. So the value of education, value of language education, I would argue, is increasing. And ironically, the value of technical education may be declining because we're going to have machines do most of that stuff. I don't know. That's, that's, a, that's a very wise point. I think you're right. As Das says, and he didn't know Sanskrit very well. He was, he was in business. And he just he got well to do, and he decided to retire from business and work on his Sanskrit, um, just the way I, as an adult, learned Latin. Um, and that's a good thing, and it makes you wiser about words, just as you say. So you stop taking words as things. You stop saying, oh, well, if I say it enough, I'm free. Um, uh, so, so the, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I worked especially in the 1980s on rhetoric, so-called, the ancient Greek and Roman art of persuasion. And uh, not that I got more persuasive, I'm not sure I did, but I learned about that words matter. And, word, and then I finally realized that they matter even in the economy. And I just wrote a book that came out in the spring called uh, Humanomics, which is about um, this matter of words ma mattering in the economy. Yeah. Yeah, this, uh, this has been great, dear Ray. Thanks so much for spending time with me. I enjoyed it. Too. Yeah, uh, good luck with all your travels. You, you seem to be doing all sorts of things. Well, I, I no try problem. to keep judging. <laughs> I try to keep um, I try to keep active. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Bye. Bye. This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. 
If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.